kind of jump the gun and get it on the platform. I thought I should dance or do a number up here. Uh, my name's Gary. Welcome, everybody. Uh, I am on staff here uh, as a pastor, and so good to be with you. Hey, before we jump into this message, there's um, times in our country's history or local history where we experience um, countrywide uh, experiences, and I feel like as a pastor at times, I have to speak to that. And I want to just take a few minutes and bring us into and give a comment on what our country witnessed yesterday in Charlottesville. Uh, I watched with incredible grief uh, what took place and frankly, uh, horror at um, bigotry, at racism, um, as neo-Nazis, white nationalists, Ku Klux Klan members, members uh, in bold and brash ways took the hoodwink off and tried to take America back again. Uh, I absolutely was crushed when I saw that people were killed. And I just want to say, bigotry and racism, I know it's not new in our country, but for PCC, uh, what I'm about to say, this is not about politics. It, what I saw yesterday was not even about free speech. Uh, it's about evil and the gospel that defeats evil. And so I want to share a couple things for us as a church and how we might respond to events like yesterday. Uh, first, I want to encourage us to seek the face of God. Individually, in our groups, uh, seek the face of God. We will in a minute corporately and go before the Lord. Uh, when we see what grieves us, our first response should always be prayer. That was my response watching my screen and being in utter horror. Instead of going on Facebook, or I'm not even on Facebook, or going on Twitter or anything like that, first thing I did was say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And uh, ultimately, Prayer will move the hand of God. No amount of activism, tweeting can replace going before the one who can heal all this brokenness in this crazy world we live in. So don't give up praying. Secondly, corporately, I just want you to know in all of our ministries, we condemn bigotry, we condemn hate, we condemn every ounce of discrimination in every one of our ministries. Primarily not on Sunday uh, is this come into play, but during the week when we're on campuses, mainly through the local schools, we're on eight of our local uh, Redwood City campuses teaching PE every day through our community center, um, we see the injustice. Uh, around the world, where we have global centers for our missions around the world, we see the injustice. And whenever a people of God come up against injustice, at times, because we speak up, because we stand with our voice and our presence is needed when we come across places of hurt and pain and things that are wrong in the world. The people of God in the history of the church has always been to stand along the side of the broken, the hurting, and the people on the receiving end of racism, bigotry, and what have you. Lastly, I want to say, uh, if you're here and you are experiencing anxiety or fear as a result of the rhetoric that took place yesterday, um, in the hate, frankly, our love, our arms of love and solidarity uh, are only a reflection of our Savior who has incredible love and solidarity with us. Is that not what the incarnation is? Jesus came to us and became one with humanity in all of our pain and brokenness. It was one thing for me as a father, uh, frankly, of, uh, of an African daughter to watch that and feel the pain, but I'm a white man. I can imagine what some of uh, my friends and family experienced uh, watching that. And so I want to say, I don't know what you're going through, but Jesus does. 
And as much as we can as a church, we want to stand alongside you. We'll have prayer counselors. Every Sunday we have prayer counselors up here. And we want to pray with you and lay you at the feet of the one who does know. The Bible is clear. We have sin in this world. There will be wrongs that need righting and there will be tears that need wiping away. That is the world we live in. In this world, Jesus said, you're going to have trouble. But the Bible is also clear that as long as the church is in the world, his Holy Spirit will be on the move. And so his spirit must come up and show up in places like Charlottesville and like places like the peninsula, reminding us all that hate won't win. Evil won't have the last word. That's what the resurrection is all about. And as people of God, it's our uh, privilege, humbly, in the power of the gospel to stand to make things that are wrong right. So um, I want to pray, and then we'll jump into Job chapter 2. Father, um, frankly, I can only imagine what goes through your heart and your mind when you look on a global level of all the pain and all the injustice around the world. And I don't know, I, you know, I don't know why this struck a chord so much, but uh, I am so sorry for how much um, bigotry, racism, prejudice, how much sin has just wreaked havoc in our country, in our world, in my own life, in my home, in my neighborhood. And we come before you and ask, in accordance with what your son taught us, please, your kingdom come, your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we realize that the only hope for the bigots and the neo-Nazis and the Ku Klux Klan members is an internal change that only the gospel can bring. It's our only hope too. And so Father, we pray that you would do a work in us where there's even a smidge of prejudice or racism or even a smidge, Lord, of things that should not be. And then do a work. We need a revival. As I was reading in Daniel chapter six, Lord, where after the lion's den, Lord, the king issued a decree that all people follow the God of Daniel. Bring that kind of revival to America. We love you and ask that you grant wisdom to police officers, grant comfort to families who are hurt, uh, grant wisdom to government officials, and please intervene. We thank you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Thanks. Thanks for giving me the time. How do I transition to Job? Why don't you grab your Bibles and open to Job chapter 2. If you don't know where Job is, uh, go to the middle of your Bible. That'll be the book of Psalms. Turn left a book. Or better yet, just turn on your Bible and enter search for Job in your Bible app. And you'll find it there. You know, examining the life of Job is like crawling into a crucible. A crucible. Uh, sit in that word for a moment. Crucible. Um, I've got the definition behind me. It's a severe test. It's a place or a situation in which concentrated forces interact to cause change or development. You've been there, right? Life is full of crucibles that come around us and mold us. Usually it's through pain. At PCC, you need to know if you're not uh, aware, we are in a unique crucible as a church. Uh, the amount of deaths we've experienced in the last three months is unprecedented in my 20 years of being here. 
Uh, we have parents dealing with diagnosis for their kid that are just horrifying. We have friends dealing with friends that lost too soon. Uh, the crucible is all around. And this message isn't primarily directed to our sisters and brothers in pain of grief. This is for us as the community around them. Uh, one of the benefits of a Christ-centered church is the absolute privilege of doing life together. Uh, if you're taking notes, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, we grieve, but we don't grieve like those without hope. In other words, Christians should grieve, but there's a distinct grief for the follower of Christ, just like all of your life should be distinct. You know that, right? Everything you do should be distinct from the world around you, including your grief. One of the aspects of distinct grief, I believe, is Christian community coming around you so you don't grieve alone. But that's hard for community because we're in tension and we tend to believe myths, like to be a friend, I have to have all the answers for my friend that's grieving. Or I have to leave them feeling better 100% of the time. Or because I'm a Christian friend, I gotta say something holy. Uh, or, or something I have to represent God. Or I have to defend God in this. Or you don't know what to say. So you just fill the void with empty words. Or you can't stand the sight and so you just stay away. And then no one feels good. There's a tension of being a community grieving a death. Enter Job. Job's the oldest book in the Old Testament, first book written in the Old Testament, and it addresses humanity's longest asked questions. Why do people suffer? How do we suffer well as the people of God? How do we bear through it? Job's crucible was brought about by two attacks of Satan, both permitted by God. I'm gonna give you the backstory to chapter two and then we're gonna jump in. But Job didn't know any of this. You can read all this in Job chapter one. The first attack was in the area of his possessions and his family. In one day, Job lost it all. He lost all his crops, all his businesses, his home, and all his children in one day. As he's catching his breath, in comes a second attack from Satan. Job's attacked in the only area that remains, the area of his health. Satan attacks him and he's covered from head to toe with sores and boils. His skin becomes blackened and cracked. He's in incredible pain. His swelling is so extreme, he hardly resembled himself. Now keep in mind as you read the book of Job, and I would really encourage you to read the book of Job. Keep in mind, we know what Job didn't know. We read chapter one. We know what was going on in the heavenly realms behind this or above this. Job didn't have that perspective. All he knew was that one moment, he was the model of health, strength, prosperity, integrity, full house of kids, full dinner table, great circle of friends, and bam, it's gone in a moment. Enter Job's friends, Job chapter two. Now it isn't long after this calamity happened, word gets out. And I'm sure Job had many friends. He was very well-networked professionally. He was a man of standing in his community. Uh, but only a few decide to make the trip to be with him. We don't know much about them. They're probably very wealthy sheiks who come to be with him. And four friends come. The youngest, wisely, is silent for most of the book. The older ones open their mouth, and the more they say, the more pain they inflict. 
And before the end of the book, as a matter of fact, uh, Job said this in Job 16:2, "You are miserable comforters, all of you." I know that's not your ambition. None of us want to be miserable comforters. So the question I want to raise is, how do we grieve well with those who are in our community? What does it mean to grieve well? That's where page two and page three come in. I want to look at three verses of what they did right. Uh, in this whole book, they started out so good, and then they jumped off a cliff and everything went south. And rather than learn from their mistakes, I want to learn from what they did right, okay? So let me give you this, okay? Here's the first. Care enough to come without being asked. It's the first thing they did. Caring enough to come without being asked. In verse 11, look what it says. Chapter 2, you there? Verse 11. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namahite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together. So they're over at Pete's in Job City. They're having coffee and they're talking about, I, this is unthinkable. You know how you are when you're friends and you first are hit with a shock wave of the truth of a death or a diagnosis or something like that of a friend or of a family member. And then there's this awkward silence, I imagine. They look at each other and they say, we gotta go. That's what it says. They said, they agreed together to go. No one sent a message to these guys asking for them to come. That wasn't necessary because real friends show up when someone they love is hurting. Real friends don't need an invitation. Most of you know that uh, a number of years ago, my brother was killed at 49 uh, in a tragic accident um, down in Palm Desert. I'll never forget being down there. I was flying down for a meeting the day he died and, and just drove over to his home. And um, it was just a blur of, uh, of, a, of a week. But on the second day, uh, the day after he died, our family was gathered together in my sister-in-law's living room and we were talking about what do we do? How do we move forward from here with, with directives and uh, taking care of different stuff? And there was a knock at the door. My sister brother, uh, lived, sister-in-law lived in a gated community in Palm Desert. And so I said to Chris, I'll, I'll get it. And there was a lot of knocking at the door. You know, people were coming by. Well, I opened the door. Um, I opened the door, and there's Mike Hammond. That maybe means nothing to you, but when I grew up in Novato, our neighbors, the Hammonds, took an international job with Chevron. Uh, and when Mike came back to go to college, he spent every holiday with us as a family, 20 years before my brother died. Mike lived in Greenville, South Carolina. I have no idea how Mike heard about my brother's death. And I looked at him and just started crying. He said, hey, I've gotten a hotel here in Palm Desert. I just couldn't stay away. I just want you to know I'm here and I'm going back to my hotel. When you need me, call me. That's huge. Three days later, I'm on the flight. I came back to get my wife on the flight back down to go to his funeral. And who shows up in, uh, in, the gar in the entryway to get on the plane but Brian Wren? I didn't invite him to my brother's funeral. He just knew he needed to be there. That's what friends do. They show up without being asked. Remember the New Testament story of Lazarus when he got sick? Remember his sister Mary and Martha? They let Jesus know about it. Look what, it's in your notes, but look on the screen, John eleven three. 3. So the sister sent word to Jesus. We need you! Is that what it says? Get over here! No, no, no. 
the one you love is sick. They knew Jesus. They knew he would come. They just had to get the word out. You have community like that? I know you should, and I know we do. Secondly, they come with a twofold strategy. I really think this will bring value to every single one of us. Sympathy and comfort. Look at verse 11 again. Job chapter 2, verse 11. Look what it says. They set out from their homes, and they met by, together by agreement to go, and look at this, to sympathize with them, to comfort him. Now, studying this, I was really intrigued. You know, the book of Job was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew. And so I'm like, what do those words mean? What is in there? What was their strategy? As they were at Pete's, they said, we're going to go, and here's what we're going to do. What does it mean? I put down on the bottom of page two what that means. To sympathize means this in the Hebrew, to shake the body back and forth. It means to relate to and identify with the person in pain. We would use the word uh, empathy today. An identity with the person who's suffering. And I just want to say this gently and humbly. Not by sharing your death story. Um, as I'm walking with people in grief, um, it's almost consistent. The point of pain in their grief is when someone well-intentioned to build an identity with someone who's dealing with a death comes up to them and shares their own death story. And the person grieving, almost universal, says, oh, I, I'm sorry, I don't want to be the magnet for death, and I'm dealing with my own pain right now. So please don't compare the pain of losing your dog with the pain of losing my loved one. Very sensitive. It's well-intentioned. I'm not slapping anyone's hand, but I'm just saying we can identify in a whole bunch of different ways without making it about us. Friends do this. They enter the crucible for the purpose of feeling the anguish and being personally touched by the pain. They came, we'll see in a minute, to a garbage dump, and there's their friend Job, and he's wailing, and he's rocking back and forth. And what they did, this, can you just see the picture? They came into the garbage dump, and the first thing they did was rock with him. Sympathize. What does the word comfort mean? It means to alleviate sorrow and distress by carrying some of the load. To alleviate sorrow and distress by carrying the load. To give emotional strength to. This is the attempt to ease some of the pain. Not erase it. You can't erase the pain. By helping make the sorrow lighter. So errands are run. Kids are taken care of. Meals are provided. Lawns are mowed. You assist wherever you're needed. In church, we do this so well. We don't do this perfectly. But this is where your Christian community is at its best. Our first responsibility as a Christian community lies in these two words. When you make first contact with someone in grief, let these two words and their meanings be on the forefront of your thinking. That's not the time to align theology. It's not the time to give a hallmark statement that does more harm than good. Our first responsibility is sympathy. Identify with the pain. Comfort. How can I carry this load a little bit for you? Okay, does that help? Thirdly, don't be turned away by distasteful sights. 
Don't be turned away by distasteful sights. Look at chapter 2, verse 12a. When they saw him from a distance, they're not even close up. They're coming to a garbage dump where Job is. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. And they began to weep out loud. Can you see it? They tore their clothes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him. The truth is, what these men came across was shocking. Uh, Frankly, majority of people dying, it's not pretty. But don't let that keep you away. They didn't even recognize Job. He has no hair. His robe is torn. He's sitting in the city dump. There's a pack of wild dogs not far away. There's garbage rotting everywhere. And they ran right into it. As I minister with people, especially adults uh, who are dealing with end-of-life things, and I say, do you have sisters or brothers? Is there people I can call for you? Are there close friends that I can just say the one you love is sick? Uh, there's times I, I'm given a list and I'll call, say a sibling, an adult sibling, and say, hey, your, your sibling is really not doing well could use a visit. And on occasion, but more than once, this is what I get. I can't go. What do you mean you can't go? I can't bear to see the sight. And with all humility, because I'm not them, and I don't want to like, judge that, but I, I just humbly go, I didn't know this was about you. Your sister needs you right now. So I'm going to ask you to rethink that and bear the sight and go. Friends do that. They step into the mess and they come alongside to get as close as possible. Friends aren't offended because a room has a foul smell. Friends don't turn away because the one they have come to be with has been reduced to a shell of a person. Friends see beyond all that. You know, as I was studying this very point, uh, and and I'm not putting this on you, this is on me, I was reflecting about this because I I have this phobia of hospitals because of something happened in my young age, and and I always have to take another breath, take a moment, renew my mind with truth before I end. You want to come preach? Come on. (laughs) She is beautiful. She is beautiful. Um, Before I enter into a hospital room, And it dawned on me that if I'm put off by sights I don't like or smells I don't like, I would have been put off by Jesus. Uh, Look at this verse. It's in your notes too, Isaiah chapter 53. Look what Isaiah said of Jesus, prophesied that he would be like when he walked the earth, especially the last moments of his life. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering familiar with pain. Here it is. Like one from whom people hide their faces. Why? Because he was so grotesque on the cross. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. We wouldn't do that, hopefully, to Jesus. We shouldn't do that with our friends. Lastly, learn the ministry of presence. This is really important. Because usually when we come upon a scene, we feel like we have to say something, right? Or I have to defend God on this, right? I want to free you up with more than half the battle. It's called the ministry of presence. 
Look what happens when they come on the scene. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. By the way, Orthodox Jews today have something called uh, sitting Shiva, S-H-I-V-A. And it's taken from this passage. It's a seven-day period of mourning that's still practiced today. And in this, uh, someone comes in and there's, for the person who's grieving and mourning for seven days, uh, doors are unlocked and taken care of, meals are taken care of. You know what they do? They, they bring black cloth and put it over every mirror in the house to free the grieving person from having to worry about how they look. And they bring uh, small stools, really low stools, because the grieving person tumbled and they want to get on the level of the grieving, uh, grieving person and sit with them. And then there's no expectation of language or communication. They let the grieving person set the pace as far as dialogue or what have you. Their goal, sympathy and comfort. Sitting Shiva. That's what they did. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. Yes, they jumped into the garbage dump and they sat there. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Listen, there's times to quote Romans 8.28, God works all things together for the good. But usually it's not in your first initial meeting or greeting someone in the greeting line after a memorial. Look, we do believe God works all things together for good. But let that person grieve unabashedly. And nor is it a time for them to do any sort of drive-by interaction, right? We weep with those who weep. It's frankly unloving sometimes to throw a Bible verse at them, thinking it'll help everything. Sometimes it's very unloving. Job's friend were at their best when they said nothing. It's when they started talking after these very verses that everything went downhill. Very important, the ministry of presence. These friends initially took time to hear Job's anguish. Not only that, but to listen to his heart. That's what you do with the grieving. You hear words, but you have the Holy Spirit tuning in to listen to the heart. As I land this plane, what I wanna encourage us all, and you do this very well, I'm just here to encourage you and give you some tools. Um, I wanna encourage us all that Jesus modeled all of this for us. He was this for us, I'll get to that in a minute. But remember in that John 11 when he came to Lazarus' tomb? And Mary and Martha, two sisters, their brother dies, and they both say the same thing to Jesus, and he reacts differently to each sister. With Martha, he gives truth. With Mary, he sheds tears. The shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. I memorized this when I, was, I wasn't even a Christian. Jesus wept. I think that tension when we, uh, and we value following the Holy Spirit, we hold those tension, those two in tension. There's times when we come on, we must sympathize. And we weep with those who weep. There's times when we come alongside and we gently, humbly share truth. Truth in tears. Truth in tears. And we're always praying, laying our friends at the feet of Jesus. Because he does this better than any of us. Let me just review this before we pray. He cared enough to come. He came to earth, my goodness, when we were in a helpless state. He came with a twofold agenda. Jesus identifies and comforts us in ways no human can. Jesus is not turned away by distasteful sight. Can I get an amen on that one? Because we are all distasteful because of sin. 
We are all dehumanized. And then talk about the ministry of presence. Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Um, in in uh, Psalm 23, God said, though you walk down the valley of the shadow of death, I'll be down that valley every step of the way. So what is distinct to Christian grief? 1 Thessalonians 4.13 there's plenty of things that are distinct, but one of them is there's community around the griever that makes sure they don't grieve alone. Let's pray. I'm going to pray for us, and then Tabitha's going to sing to us. And when I'm done praying, I want to invite you just to sit in this song, and if you want to sing with her, you can, but let let these words minister to your heart. Maybe as I've been speaking, the Holy Spirit has been bringing conviction to you. I need to call that person. I need to text that person. I need to let them know they're not alone. Or I need to bring a meal. Or I need to let someone into my pain. I, I don't know. I'm not your Holy Spirit. But I do want you to follow, follow his conviction. And then when we're done with this gathering, a prayer team will be here to minister to you. We have a Stevens ministry that's set up with gifted men and women just to walk alongside people, not just in grief, but to walk alongside people. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is us. This is a community in grief. And thank you for raising up this portion of your word to give us some tools on how to move into that grief with people. Lord, give us wisdom and let us follow your prompting now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.